today. It's found in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 26. And follow along as I read aloud. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may have heard of the, the guy that I'm about to mention as we begin our time. Uh, the prolific theologian, St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, however you prefer to pronounce his name. St. Augustine was once quoted saying this. He said, he was asked, what is the central principle of the Christian life? What are the central principles of the Christian life? And St. Augustine said this. He said, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, you could probably guess, right? Humility. I, I think it would be funny, honestly, if you threw a curveball in that third one uh, and just threw in something else that's a, a very important principle. But he said, humility, humility, humility. And humility, humility, humility comes from knowing that our God is holy, holy, holy. If we were to go out this afternoon, which honestly I think we should do this at some point in the future, as a church body, if we were to go out into McKinney and we were to survey the land and ask people one-on-one, -on -one, is humility a good virtue to possess we're going to get a lot of hard yeses, right? They're going to say, yeah, absolutely. Humility is great virtue to possess. But if we were to ask a second question to the people in the land and ask them, how is humility attained? Humility is a great virtue, but how do I get it? How do I grow in it? We're going to get a lot of different answers. A couple years ago, I was counseling these two young men who both separately came to me. And they were both battling the same issue. They were battling with some pride that had arisen in their heart that they'd become aware of. And they were Christian enough to know that pride's not a good thing. And so they said, you know, what should we do? What should we do about this pride issue that's going on in our heart? I said, first of all, it's common to man. I mean, it's, it's true for me. It's true for all of us. Pride wants to sneak in the back door into our hearts. But they asked, you know, what should I do? And I just asked them in response, well... What kills pride? And what cultivates humility? It was interesting because the, the two guys, they said different things. It was both wrong, but they, they said different things. The first young man said this. He said, well, I think it's being humbled. I think it's failing publicly. That, that humbles you, right? And then he referenced the time when he was, uh, he used to be a star athlete. He was a football player. And he referenced a time where he was publicly humiliated uh, in a game where he was supposed to be dominating, and he got dominated. And he said, that was really humbling. And I said, well, I hope it doesn't have to come to that for me to grow in humility, you know? 
And then the second young man, he, I said, how about you? What do you think? How, how, what kills pride? What cultivates humility in our hearts? He said, well, I think it's pursuing humility. It's trying to be humble. And I appreciated their response. These were honest answers, right? This is, they've been thinking about it. They, they were wanting to rid themselves of pride. So, you know, it's actually coming kind of from a humble heart in a way. But they're wrong on both accounts. What would you have said? And maybe, maybe you're here this morning, you're going, man, both of their answers sounded pretty strong. I'm not really sure what I would have said in that situation. Fortunately, that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at what kills pride and what cultivates humility in our hearts. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We have arrived in chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for a number of weeks now this fall. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Humility of Our Lord Jesus Christ. In the title of this sermon is the answer to the question, what kills pride and cultivates humility in our hearts? It's the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we see in the first four verses is the continued desire in Paul for the Philippians to pursue unity. He's continuing a thought that he's been carrying out in the end of chapter 1, and it's linked to humility. We'll, we'll get to that point, but first we need to look at this. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection of sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's asking for unity. He begins with the word so or therefore. So again, he's connecting what he just said at the end of chapter one to what he's saying here in chapter two. He's using an if-then conditional sentence to link these two things, unity and humility. He said, if there's any dot, 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 
And then he lists several things. And he's not, he's not asking the Philippians, is there any in your heart? Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any dot, dot, dot? No, no, no. It's more of like a, since you have this, therefore, complete my joy in. So what's the first thing that he says, if there's any in your heart, since there is some of this in your heart? He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Well, the word encouragement here is paraklesis in the original language. It just, it means calling near or coming alongside someone. So is there any of that in Christ? Look at me. Oh yeah, there's a lot of encouragement in Christ. There's a lot of coming near in Christ. First, Christ came near to us because we could not draw near to him in his incarnation. Then, what is Christ doing now? After he died for our sin, resurrected, ascended on high, he promised, he said, I'll be with you always. I'll come alongside you always till the end of the age as you're carrying out your mission of advancing my message, the gospel. And then there is an encouragement in Christ in that he's coming near again. He will return. And he will restore all things. Second, he says, if there's any comfort from love, and that word comfort is almost synonymous with the word encouragement, it, is, it, it brings to mind a peace or solace of a trembling heart. It's comforting. Is there any comfort in the love that we have in Christ Jesus? Well, absolutely. And I love the way John puts it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love. There's no trembling heart in love. Only the trembling of awe, the love that God has shown sinners, but, but not a trembling of a fear of punishment. Listen to this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, which is in Christ, it casts out fear. For fear, the wrong kind of fear, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, the love that God has shown us in Christ is that Christ was punished for our sins. And so that should cast out fear in our heart that we, who are still sinners, but those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that we're in Christ, that means we have escaped the punishment that is coming on Judgment Day, ultimately when, when God judges the world in righteousness. That's very comforting. He says, is there any participation in the Spirit? For sure. This word participation, we, we talked about this earlier on in Philippians. It's the word koinonia. It's the, it's the meaning uh, a partnership, a joint venture. And yes, there is a partnership in the Holy Spirit. From the moment that you put your faith in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ alone, you received the Holy Spirit as your first birthday gift, having been born again. And the Holy Spirit, his title is helper, the helper, the comforter. And his presence is with us always till the end of the age. And through his presence, there is power to carry out what we've been commanded through the Great Commission and all that Christ has taught us to obey. Is there any affection and sympathy? Absolutely. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, because we have Christ with us always till the end of the age, we have great affection, not only for God and for Jesus, but for one another. 
And not just for one another as the body of Christ, but for the outsiders, for those who are not yet members of the body of Christ because they are still dead in their sin and they need you to share the gospel with them. We have love for those who are perishing and we have enough compassion to share with them the truth that death is coming, but Christ has defeated death. Take refuge in him and live There's great affection and sympathy in us as believers. So what's the response? The the Philippians, what Paul is encouraging them to do is consider these things. Remember, you have it. And complete my joy by continuing to maintain unity. He says by having the same mind. That means holding fast to the truth of God's word. Holding fast to sound doctrine. By having the same love. That means having our primary allegiance and affections for Christ alone. That we are primarily citizens of heaven. By being in full accord and of one mind. That that word, in full accord, that phrase, it it literally means one-souled. It's like we have one soul. We're mind, heart, strength. We're just one. We're interconnected as a church. In what? The desire, the great desire in our hearts to honor Christ. Remember, honor, make large Christ. In in what areas of our life? Segmented areas? No, in all of our life, in every nook and cranny of our hearts and our life. From washing the the dishes to changing the oil in our car to feeding our children to going to work and doing it with the excellence as much excellence as we can to the glory of God. I mean, it's in everything. We want to make him large. Why do you do things the way you do? Because of him. I want to honor him. And alongside all those little details and all those ways that we honor Christ in every aspect of our life, we are to advance the gospel through the Great Commission. We're to proclaim the gospel to those around us. That's Paul's desire. Paul wants the Philippians to pursue true unity And the way that they do it is with and through true humility. That's the connection. It can only be done with and through truly humble hearts. And so here comes the rest of the text, starting in verse 3. Do do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Just pause for a second. That means there's, there's not a single moment in our lives where that's appropriate. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Again, pride is like the antithesis of humility. It's the opposite of it. And pride is an unhealthy focus on self. That's what breeds pride. Pride is at the heart of our culture, uh, of this dark world in which we live. The world encourages us to be proud of ourself, to exalt ourself, to be self-focused. Think about the, the new phrase of late is self-care, you know? You, what you need is more self-care. Not really. <laughs> that doesn't mean that there's not times for rest But life's not about self-care. Life's about caring for others. And and what's so interesting to me is I was thinking about this. Why, what's the fruit of of this focus 
of focusing on self. What's the fruit? You see it everywhere. It's greater despair. It's greater anxiety. It's greater depression. That's the fruit of the philosophy of this world. It's crazy. You you think it's for you. It's against you. This self-focus. We weren't created for selfishness. That's why. That's why it has a negative result because we were created to reflect the glory and image of God who is a self-giving God. He is selfless. There's humility in the Lord Jesus Christ. Great humility and love. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is prophetic. Paul's telling Timothy this. He's giving him a heads up. He says, understand this. In the last days before Christ comes, there will come times of difficulty. Well, why are they so difficult? Verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. And he goes on to say, they'll, they'll love other things too, but starts with that. He says, yeah, they'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant. Verse 4 says, they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What kind of pleasure? Self-pleasure. Rather than God's pleasure? Rather than the pleasure and comfort and care for others. Godlessness is pride, and pride is godlessness. Pride has a high concern for self. And that's just not the Christian life. I mean, we're to be holy. We're to be set apart in not being like this. And Christ gives us good reasons to not be like this. I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. That's the mindset we're to have. He continues, he says, If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Christian humility is God-focused, first and foremost. And it is also focused on God's mission, which is advancing the gospel. So we have to do a self-assessment. Again, we've got to ask ourselves, am I living for Christ? Am I living for the advancement of his gospel? Or have I drifted subtly into this living for myself, living for my own interests, living for my own comfort, living for my own success, living for my happiness, living for my pleasure, living for my personal advancement in this world, my kingdom come, my will be done. And the reality is our heart wants to do that, like all the time. And so we've just got to be on guard. And then when it sneaks in, confess it, repent of it, and just say, get out of here. That's not for me anymore. I've been bought by the blood of Christ not to live for myself, but for him and his glory. Pride, it has a high view of self. So not only does it have a high concern of self, but a high view of self. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. I love what Dr. Steve Lawson says about this. He says, no one struts through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom. And then that, as if that statement wasn't, you know, a mic drop enough, he continues, he says, no one high steps their way down the narrow path. I mean, listen, you enter into the kingdom of God through humility and you walk in humility until you enter glory. Amen? I mean, that's the Christian life from beginning to middle to end. 
So we need to look to Christ to humble our hearts because they are so easily tempted to walk in pride. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? I love that question. The answer is nothing. It's a rhetorical question. He says, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You, you got wisdom? You got strength? Do you have affluence? Do you have wealth? Riches? Are you gifted? What do you have that did not come from God's grace? Did he not supply the energy? Did he not supply the good looks? Did he not supply what's in the bank account? Did he not supply every good thing? Is he not the father of lights from whom every gift is given? He is. Praise God. So we boast in nothing. We boast in him and him alone. We've got to beware of pride because God opposes pride. James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. He didn't just oppose pride. He opposes the proud person. <laughs> but then he says this, but God gives grace to the humble. Praise God. What is true humility? You don't have to go look on Webster's you know, dictionary for this. It's right here. Look at verse 3. What is true humility? What is biblical humility? It is counting others more significant than you. Verse 4 adds a little bit to it. It says not just looking to your interests, what you would prefer, but again, it's looking to the interests of others. How would this decision, look at me, how would this decision, no matter how big or small, how would this decision that I'm about to make impact the people around me? Starting with my family, starting with my neighbors, starting with my, my, the body of Christ, the church that I'm a part of, how is this post on Facebook, how is this decision, how is this action on vacation or at the workplace going to affect the image of Christ? How is it going to affect the way people view the church? How is it going to affect the honor of, of God? I promise you, our decisions, big and small, have an impact on this. And so we've got to be very careful with what we say and what we do and how we think. Humility is a mind that is set on others, not on self. The humble person is looking out for others. They're concerned, more concerned with the benefit of others than themselves. They're concerned with the progress and the faith of others more than themselves. They, they are truly humble. Humility is not self-hatred. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? It, it's, it would be silly to say, oh, I'm, I'm not good at guitar, right? Or I'm terrible at baking. When you're actually an excellent guitar player, or you're a fabulous baker, that, that's, that's a lie. Humility is not going, oh, I'm, I'm not that good. It's saying, this is a gift from the Lord. I, I try to steward as best I can. Th thanks for saying that. That's encouraging. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. It's thinking about others more. That's what it is. False humility is very, very dangerous because it's so prominent. It's insidious. It's just as sneaky as pride. I'd say it's sneakier than pride. Pride's almost more obvious to point out. 
False humility, it's veiled in humility. It's, the outward actions are seemingly humble, but internally, pride. Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus said, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. They got the approval of man. Check. False humility is seen with the person who is constantly running around doing all these activities to be seen by people instead of by God and for his pleasure in that. They want to hear, you're so humble, you're such a servant-hearted person, more than they want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So false humility, it's coming for us all. I mean, it's getting our, it's nails in us. It wants to cling, it wants, and we have to scrape it off. It's just external. It's a veneer. It's not true humility. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees sternly because of their hypocrisy. They didn't have true humility. John chapter 5, verse 44. He said, how can you believe? He's literally saying, how can you enter into the kingdom? You don't have humility. How can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They didn't go public with it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why, why was that so important that they not be put out of the synagogue? It says, verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I mean, this is crazy. These people understood who Jesus was. They had intellectually assented to that. And they, they understood it, but they would not confess it because they didn't want to stand out in the light and go I believe that he is who he says he is and they died in their sin because was not true saving faith we need to be on guard against false humility there are many people in church that are silent about Christ because they have a veil of false humility this is true it's located in the heart and a lot of us can't see it because it's hidden through good deeds. But it is very visible to God. So the question, how can we as believers rid ourselves of pride, grow in true humility, and avoid false humility? And the answer is not by pursuing the virtue of humility. That lands you in false humility. It's unsuccessful. The answer is by looking to the holiness of God in the personification of humility, which is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, embodied in him. Which brings me to my second point. True humility in its purest form is found and exemplified in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Friends, if we are not renewing our minds through the word of God each day, we are drifting into pride, into false humility, into something that isn't good. And so we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds each day. 
And as we renew our minds through the scriptures, we are confronted with Christ everywhere, whether it's him being prophesied of, or it's him in the flesh, or it's apostles looking back on what he has done in his body on the tree for us. It humbles us. And without the constant renewing of our minds, keeping the clay pot watered, and being shaped into what God wants, not what we want, without that, we get dry and brittle, and we lose the wonder of the gospel that we once experienced years, years ago when we first came to faith. We've got to keep our hearts warm by being in the Word of God and by being with one another. The gospel reminds us of the humility of Christ who started at the highest of heights and he stooped to the lowest of lows and then he suffered and died the greatest death known to man in our place at the cross. Look at verse 6. We see the deity of Christ, the highest of heights. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Prior to his incarnation, when he put on flesh and blood and bone, Christ was in the presence of the Father and the Spirit in glory, with them before the foundation of the world. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. A glory veiled in flesh, but a glory nonetheless. It's interesting that the Greek word for was, though he was in the form of God, it's not even there. It helps us make sense of the sentence, but it's not even there. Instead, Paul chooses another term. A term that stresses the essence of a person. His continuous state or condition. So though he was in the form of God, though he in the form of God, never ceased to be in the form of God. Continued in the form of God. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To be in the form of God is to be equivalent to being God. That's what that means, literally. So, did Jesus make this declaration about himself, or was this just Paul's theology of Jesus? No, Jesus made this declaration of himself and his divinity. He made it very clear. John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that, those two words, I am, are very familiar if you've read your Old Testament. You know where those were first uttered. It's the name Yahweh which was given to Moses at the burning bush when he said, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me to redeem them out of slavery in Egypt? He says, tell them I am sent you. John 14, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
I love this because Jesus is saying there's a distinction. Two different persons, father and son, and yet they're one. It's alluding to the Trinity here. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' followers began to understand. Philip began to understand. Peter began to understand. Who who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you wouldn't have known that if God did not reveal that to you. So you're welcome, and also, praise God, you're right. And then you got doubting Thomas at the end of, after Christ is resurrected from the dead, he's still like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I gotta see it myself, I gotta see it, I gotta put, put my hand in the hole at his side and touch those wounds. I mean, I, I don't know. Is he really breathing? Yes. Thomas, after seeing the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection, said, My Lord and my God, Theos. He knew who he was. Jesus' enemies understood who he was. They, they were picking up on what he was putting down about himself. John chapter 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, have I shown you many good works from the Father? For which of them are you going to stone me? I just love it. I just love every word that comes out of his mouth. It's just like pure gold. For what good thing are you going to stone me today? The Jews say, it's not for a good work that, you are going, that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, here it is, because you, being a man, and they're right about that, fully man, make yourself God. And they're right about that, too. That's exactly what he was doing. And that's why they killed him. I had a long interview years ago with one of the most prominent Hindu leaders in DFW, Like he oversees all the places of worship for Hindus. And I asked him, I was just asking him question after question. I was trying to understand. And I'm telling you, friends, I mean, totally saturated in arrogance. He was answering these questions and he was beginning to really uh, degrade me for believing the Christian faith, for believing in Christ. And at the end, I asked him one last question. And I've never asked anyone this question before that moment. And I asked him this question and he didn't know the answer. And this man was humbled in one moment by a foolish man. I said, why did they kill Jesus? Why did they desire to pick up those stones and hurl them at this man? He said, I don't know. I said, if you knew, you would understand who he proclaimed to be. And it wasn't a prophet. It wasn't a good teacher. It wasn't a philanthropist. It wasn't anything man. It was that he was God in the flesh. The God man. That he came to take away the sins of the world. How? By dying in the flesh for our sins. It's a very interesting conversation. The rest of the scriptures testify to Christ's deity. And they affirm that he is God in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 He's the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was and is, continues to be most certainly God, no less. He never lost his deity, not for a moment. And yet, his humility is seen in that fully divine, not losing any of his divinity, he added something to himself, humanity. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be taken advantage of. 
for his personal pleasure or comfort or exaltation. Verse 6 highlighted the deity of Christ. Verse 7 highlights the humanity of Christ. Totally God, totally man. Look at verse 7. How did he not take the equality with God, a thing to be grasped? How? By emptying himself, it says. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is so wild to me that this verse, this passage in particular, is intended for the unity and the humility of believers and the church. And for centuries, this might be the most hotly debated and controversial text that is dividing and causing pride on different sides. How did he empty himself? What does that mean? It it does mean empty. It means pour out. It also means metaphorically to give up status or privilege, and that's exactly what Christ did. He didn't lose any deity. He just gave up, though he had the status and all the privileges that came with that. He said, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to grasp it. I don't need to use this right now for my glory. This is not, I'm actually here for you, not for me. The theory of kenosis is that Christ emptied himself of deity. And I just want to be really clear, that's heresy. If you don't know what heresy means, it means that's bad. That is incredibly, incredibly wrong, and it, it can lead to a false gospel. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of who Christ is. I mean, we're here. We want to worship the one true God. We want to worship Jesus Christ, the real Son of God and God the Son. And so we cannot miss this. He lost nothing of his divinity. He lost nothing of his godness. He did not even give up some of his divine attributes. He had them all. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Not that he subtracted his divinity, but that he added his humanity. I call this subtraction by addition. Jesus is one person with two natures, fully divine, fully human. The best illustration I can give of this, and and it's not even that good, is when a CEO of a Fortune 100 company cleans the toilets in the building that he works in. He doesn't stop being the CEO, but he adds a servant heart to his leadership position. This was prophesied of. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Two things to keep in mind. Number one, the virgin shall conceive. We'll come back to that. Secondly, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not God, getting rid of God to become with us. No, God with us by adding humanity. This was prophesied and this was fulfilled. And I love what Galatians 4 says. It says, when the fullness of time had come, meaning when God had appointed the time for his son to come and add humanity, God sent forth his son, born of woman, the virgin, born under the law. Why? to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why am I so emphatic that the miraculous birth of Christ, it was through a virgin? Because what Christ did was he became fully man and yet he was born of a virgin, meaning he did not inherit the sin of Adam. He did not inherit a sin nature, the sin nature that we all inherited in Adam. 
that inclines us to go the way that's not of God. It inclines us towards pride instead of humility. What drove the Lord of glory to go from such a high height to such a low low, to condescend himself like this? I mean, I'm, I'm pushing my son in a stroller this morning. I'm going on a run through our neighborhood. I'm just looking at him. And he's 17 months old, and he's just a little baby, just a little blob. And he's just sitting there, and, and he can't even walk yet. I mean, he's so helpless and needy. And my God became that for me? That's, that is so low. That is so humble. That he put on flesh and blood and bone for us. He knows what it's like to be a baby. He knows what it's like to go through puberty. He knows what it's like to grow in wisdom and stature before God and man. Wow. It's not enough to reflect on the incarnation every Christmas. We've got to think about this every day. Christ came from the highest of heights to rock bottom to save sinners. It's not like he came to save the good ones. There are no good ones. He came to save the worst of us. How did he do it? By taking on skin and taking on our sin and suffering and dying in our place. We see the humility of Christ in verse 8. The God-man being found in human form. He humbled himself. I wish, I wish it said he humbled himself further. Being found in human form is so humiliating enough for God. But it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The significance of this cannot be overlooked. And if it is, we just won't live rightly. We just won't. He completely submitted to the will of the Father. Perfect obedience. There was active obedience on Christ's behalf. He became a man to live for you. He was actively living for you. His whole life was about obeying the will of God. It was fulfilling the commandments that you and I have broken. But then that wasn't enough. He had to obey God further. His law demanded death. The wage of sin is death. Not just punishment. Not just suffering, death, the loss of breath, a heart that stops pumping, and that's what Christ did. In his active obedience, perfect life. In his passive obedience, substitutionary death. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might just put aside our pride and walk in humility because we're being humbled as we look to the cross. By his wounds, we've been healed. Again, fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah. The crucifixion was not like a convenient way to die. It, it wasn't a, con a convenient form of, of punishment for the Romans. The Romans, they loved crucifixion. Because what it did was it was a public statement to the watching world that the person who's hanging on this cross is beyond contempt. 
They deserve worse than this. If we could contrive something worse than this death, we would do it. That's what they were proclaiming when they crucified a criminal on the cross. And the Lord of glory took a cross for you and I. It should cause us to weep. It wasn't just extremely painful, though it was. It was the most degradingly shameful form of death one could undergo. It was an absolute destruction of the person as a whole. They hung naked on a cross. Modern medicine helps us today understand the cause of death for those who are crucified. It was either asphyxiation, which is suffocation, or it was total shock from the immensity of the pain. It was thought to be the worst way to die because it was. A person was hanging, suspended by their arms, and that caused great difficulty in breathing through the lungs. And so what they would do is they'd push up with their feet, which were nailed. And so there's pain in the feet, there's pain in the back, there's pain in the arms, just to get a breath. And this process would go on and on and on until they eventually died. Friends, it was like, it was like drowning it was like drowning inches of where the water's just right here. And you go up for breath and down, and eventually you can't raise up anymore and you die if the pain didn't kill you already. And Jesus knew that he would suffer and die just like that. Knowing every sin of thought, of action, of, of words that you would ever commit, that you still will commit. He went to the cross to pay for it all so that he could proudly proclaim, with one last breath, it is finished. So that you could have assurance through the Holy Spirit that when you put your faith in Christ alone, the sins are forgiven, the debt has been paid, it is finished finished. Worship begins and worship never ends. The Lord of glory crucified. And praise God it didn't end that way because the Lord of glory was exalted, was he not? Three days later, after his death, after the horrid death, he was resurrected from the dead, vindicated by the Father. He never sinned, though we all have, and he lived for us, though we didn't live for him. He imaged God perfectly. He became man in the image of God, though he was God, to reflect the glory of God. Why? Because we had fallen short of the glory of God. And he did it for us who had fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 9. How does God respond? This is my third and final point. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. How high? Doesn't get higher. The highest for the most humble. He has highly exalted him and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The exaltation of Jesus was prophesied as much as the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he did. He shall be lifted up, and he was, and shall be exalted, it says. How did God exalt Christ's humble work on our behalf? By giving him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Almost every scholar is in agreement that it is the name that he claimed while he was on earth before Abraham was, I am. It's the name Yahweh. He identified as Yahweh. He is and he's given that name. The name above every name. The name that is the climax. It is the name that is connected to covenant love. It is a personal name of God. It is the name that's associated with the redemption out of slavery in Egypt. It's a powerful name. Why did he give him that name? Jesus has other names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, etc., etc. But why did he give him the name Yahweh, the name above every name? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Although Jesus bears the divine name, Yahweh, Lord, as it's seen in our English translations, all caps, Lord, he is still worshipped in his human name, Jesus. Why? It was in the flesh that he displayed the divine glory of God to the world. Friends, bowing is a sign of submission to a higher authority. Jesus Christ is that higher authority. There is no higher authority anywhere. Who will bow on that day when Christ comes? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone in heaven. The saints who are in the present heaven awaiting that day when they'll come. The martyrs who are in heaven and going, when? When will you come back? When will we be given our bodies? When will we reign with you in glory in the new heavens and the new earth? Them, the the elect angels that are with God, that are our ministering spirits. Everyone on earth, both the redeemed, those who are in Christ, and even the rebels who are outside of Christ, they will all, when he comes, bow a knee. And they will do more than that. They will confess with their mouth, some for the first time ever, some of us in continuation, that He is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The encouragement is to do it now. It is to do it now. Because we do not know that day. It is to go to God now. And say, I am not God. You are, and I believe that you died for my sins. I believe you're resurrected from the dead. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, and you believe in your heart, it's not just uh, words. It is a sincere, it's coming from your heart. It is erupting for your soul. You believe that God raised him from the dead. That he is the exalted one. You will be saved. Promise of God, not a preacher. 
We cannot ask for a more clear statement of Christ's divinity. We cannot ask for a greater expression of his humility. Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. Okay, just one. Verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 23, to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And this is all to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 11. It says, to the glory of God the Father. So after his exaltation, what does Jesus do? Does, he, does humility end? No, what he does, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, when all things are subjected to, them, to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. Why? That God may be all and in all. Praise God. In conclusion, We began our time with the question, what kills pride and cultivates humility in our hearts? Answer, looking to the holiness of God and the humility of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of the cross. Never become apathetic to the gospel. God encourages humility in each and every one of us. God exemplifies humility in Christ And God exalts humility. True humility is counting others more significant than yourself, friends. True humility is looking to the interest of others more than your own interests, your selfish ambitions, which creep in because of sin. True humility is never unseen. It's never forgotten. And it's never unrewarded by God. And the same is true for pride. It's never hidden from God's sight. So with all our heart, we should do what 1 Peter 5 says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's pray. Father, help us to grow in humility without having to be humiliated. Help us grow in humility, not by actively seeking the virtue itself, but actively pursuing the virtuous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's gentle and lowly in heart. Father, through a renewed mind, a renewed appreciation for Christ's journey from the heights of heaven to the valley of crucifixion. Help us to count others as more significant than ourselves and to look to the interest of others before ourselves. In Jesus' holy and humble name, amen.